Hey, welcome to the Christmas Rescue Cast, or the Christmas Cast. We have got a host of characters on board for this, and we'll go around the, uh, the Zoom circle here, do some introductions, and then we're going to get on to some great topics today and rip some scabs off. So oh, joy. <laughs> so I'll start on my top left. Kevin, go ahead. Who are you? Where are you from right now? Hey, Mark. Uh, this is Kevin Lunny from Vector Rescue. Um, we're based in uh, the northwest corner of Connecticut, about an hour and a half outside of New York City. Right on. Below Kevin on my screen, we've got Craig. Go ahead. Uh, Craig McClure, Cracker Jack Group, uh, here from Southern Colorado. And uh, I'm just here to listen. I don't have very strong opinions on anything. I just, I just want to hear the rest of you. Exactly. Below him, all the way, I think probably the furthest east, Colin, where are you from now? <laughs> hey there, guys. My name's Colin. I'm with Technical Rope and Rescue, and we're located in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, off the east coast of Canada. Except for you can't fly to the rest of Canada right now. Wait, Canada right now we're first. still in our own little provincial bubble. There he is, yep. Colin, you say we. Are there other people that live where you live? There's, uh, there's <laughs> another... Uh, yeah, <laughs> 499,000, yeah. <laughs> All right, bottom right, Cliff. Hi, uh, good morning, Cliff Freer from, uh, I work for the FDNY, I teach for New York State and also for Capital Technical Rescue in Albany. And when we talk about no opinions on this podcast, there's another one right there. <laughs> well, I was actually getting the cold bullshit for the first time today by calling Craig on not having an opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And James, last but not least. Guys, good morning. I'm James Croswell. I'm Kevin's business partner with Vector Rescue. Uh, we're in the Northeast uh, in Connecticut, like Kevin said, about an hour and a half outside of the city. And just to confuse things more, I have one of my business partners on Kevin, so I'll have to, you know, organize how I, I do that. So he's with us as well. And before we got started, we threw out the, the ITRA, ITRA, whatever you want to call it, hand grenade. And uh, I mean, the conversation topic is, is ITRA dead? Anyone want to take this up? You're all so keen two minutes ago. I yes. personally, I, I, hope, I hope it's not dead. I think the concept still has merit. And I think if we continue to get behind it, get the right place, people in place, we can do something with it. May need to call it something else or Whatever, but I think the concept still has merit. So I hope it's not dead, but seems like it might be. Well, a couple points out of that then is, is the concept valid? Gentlemen, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely um, think that the concept is valid, you know, as we were kind of talking about offline. Um, I think the, the thing that interested me, and I think we kind of all agreed with it, was the idea of like third-party validation of skills. And, you know, a true kind of uh, objective assessment of what you're doing and when you say I hold this certification, um, you know anyone who, who knows what that agency is knows what that means. Um, I share Colin's frustrations. Um, I think the early adopters of this, um, many of which are, are in this podcast, I think really saw the value, and I and I think we've backslid uh, tremendously on that. Um, and I think we've lost a lot of the early adopters uh, that really could have made this organization great. Okay. Um, I'll speak positively at Daryl. I know he's been thrown into a tough position right now. As I mentioned, I met him at Grimp a few years back. And I think if anybody out there can kind of put things back on, um, yeah, Daryl, um, he's out of the UK. 
he used to run or be uh, one of the senior members of some of the TRUs. He may still be. I haven't uh, spoken to him in a few years outside of sending him an email. And you know, he's kind of been tasked with cleaning this mess up, I guess, for lack of a better word. Is that even a possibility at this point? You ask if it's dead. I think it's coded out several times in the table. And I'm not sure if the doctors in the room are capable or want to try to save it. Um, I, I love the concept. I got in early. I think um, standards-based independent assessment is would be a would be a godsend to our industries, um, and would have been kind of a uniting factor. But about four months in, as as Cliff alluded to offline, um, it feels like it just became became a money grab, and it was it was run by it was run by a cult of personality, not not as a member-driven organization. And I think the reputational damage, especially in the U.S., is going to be tough to overcome. So I, I don't know if it's if its current name and its current scheme survives. I hope something like it does. Um, but as an example, you know, there are some of us on this call that were at the first assessors workshop, and there were people in the room who were being blessed as assessors, who stood up and said, "I don't want to be an assessor till I can be assessed." And against their wishes, they were told they were assessors because it was a way to make money to get more assessments going. That kind of stuff had had to stop. But no opinion, none. So I'm gonna switch gears slightly with it then. What does it say to a standards organization like NFPA, if we're all sitting here going, something like an ITRA needs to exist because there's no you know, clear third party evaluation for rescue worldwide. So what does it say to some of these standards organizations that already exist? Are they valid? Are they, is it worthwhile? Uh, they're valid from a North American point of view. Uh, it's one of the struggles with NFPA for me. As NFPA grows and becomes more, more relevant to industry as well, not just firefighters, where is the overlap between ITRA and the NFPA? And, you know, it would be, I don't think it speaks anything to them as far as negative goes, but it's an international organization, it, but it would be great if some of it was overlapped or cross, you know, compared with each other. So you don't have two competing organizations for standards. That's for sure. That's one of the challenges with ITRA is that it kind of does replace an NFPA, but if you're looking at it globally, NFPA is not relevant around the globe. So that's where well, we're at, I, I think. I don't think ITRA should replace NFPA. I, I think ITRA should just take, ITRA should be able to look at whatever region the, the person looking to be assessed is going to be working in, whether it's industry or fire or a combination of both, whatever it is, the assessor should be able to look at where they're working, that that person is working, cobble together whatever references they need that are relevant, whether it be an ANSI standard, OSHA, uh, MSHA, whatever it is, and say, all right, well, this is your world, and this is what you're gonna be tested on, and then be able to test it. It shouldn't be course-driven. It shouldn't be, uh, it should just be an assessment, right? It's third-party validation, that's all it should be, and it, it made it, the, the overlap comes, you, you look at like uh, ERTs and industrial fire brigades. They're very squarely with foot in both worlds. And right. sometimes 
you know, sometimes it needs to be, uh, you know, I mean, gerrymandered at best because they're real, they're very clearly two different standards. But the assessor should be able to see what the, the overall objective is and, and have an assessment made up for that, you know. It, it should be somewhat vague, but the objective should be very clear. Yeah, we didn't need ITRA to come up with a new list of three levels of rope rescue or confined space rescue or well, driving. What, what we need ITRA to do is to show up at an organization and say whether or not these people are competent at the relevant NFPA JPRs, or if it's in Europe, the relevant standard there, or let's say we're in California. California has its own rope rescue standard, as does British Columbia, where we live. It's not for the fire departments, it's for the wilderness rope rescue. But yeah, an organization that can say, yes, you are competent to whatever standard it is that the authority having jurisdiction is stipulated. Well, Kev, you bring them. I, I love that train of thought. You know, the, that was my original, that was my want from ITRA is not to spend all our time arguing over what skill goes in what level and have another three tiered level approach for me. It was just your have a course, you complete some skills, say these 10 skills, and then you have an outside independent assessor come in and confirm that your guys learn these skills and they're competent in them. It's, an, it's a legally defensible verification of competency for someone that's just completed a course. Well, and, it, and it doesn't stick with one organization. It's not like you can only list stuff from the NFPA. Well, right, and I, and I think Kevin brought up a... Sorry, Cliff. That's all right, Kevin. I, was, I, I think I think Kevin brought up a really interesting point that um, you know the NFPA JPRs for 1006. There's nothing wrong with them, and and I think they do a very good job of of listing out a set of standards for you know, fire service based rope teams. Um, I think the most of us would would take um, consideration with is how that standard is applied and, and assessed, not necessarily like the skills themselves. And and I do agree with Colin and, and Cliff and. And Kevin, that if, if there was some independent organization that could do mountain rescue assessment and NFPA-based assessment and, um, you know, whatever your, your skill set needed to be based on an existing standard, uh, I think that has a lot of merit. Because um, by and large, I don't have any great issue with the NFPA. I think it's often kind of misunderstood, misquoted, um, or there's a lot of dogma associated with it. But if you actually deep dive into the standards, um, they, they take great care not to, like, prescribe you must do this. Um, when it comes to skill sets. I just like to misquote NFPA to piss off Cliff. <laughs> but I, I think you guys are, I think we're all on the same page. The, the great overreach in ITRA was that it tried to be the overarching standard organization rather than an assessment organization. Yep. When ITRA tried to write standards to cover the entire world for all these different disciplines, it was never going to hit the right mark. So why not just be, why not just be an organization that can competently assess competence? If that makes any sense. I was actually looking forward to my tactical driving underwater with you know knife in my teeth in Tucson. I mean, I think that was level seven, wasn't it? You wrote that standard, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> so serious question. We, we saw that fall apart in the confined space group because oh yeah, <laughs> with, you know, you, like they had the USAR standard. Okay, well, you're responding to a building collapse. It's pretty, you know, grab the weight, support the weight, distribute the weight. Like, you know, that doesn't really need much oversight. 
when you when we got in the confined space, the combination of all the different industries and the laws and regions and everything, this quickly showed the Achilles heel how writing a standard internationally doesn't work. We can assess a standard because the assessor can look at whatever that that region is and say, okay, well, this is reasonable and this is what we're gonna test you on. But to be able to write a course on that that everybody's gonna fit into, it's impossible. Hey, Mark, can I throw another hand grenade at this sure, one? Sure, go ahead, Craig, why not? <laughs> for, for the people that were on the committees, because I think I was too contentious to be allowed on a committee, um, do you think that having large manufacturers sponsor ITRA and then be on the curriculum committees for disciplines they had already developed curriculum for, was that part of the sticking point? What, was it, be, were we trying to, was it trying to be forced towards an existing curriculum set? I would love to say no, but then we started going down a wormhole about approved workbooks, which totally veered off of the original scope, I thought, which was standards-based or assessing standards. And now all of a sudden it's like, do you have an approved workbook? Do you not have an approved workbook? And it's like, who cares? And the skeptical side of me kind of says, was that pushed by organizations that were looking for profit out of the entire thought stream of it oh boy i can you know i can charge for my assessor but they also have to use my workbook to i mean heck if I, I could have jumped on board that with ronan and sold my workbook to them and said only my people can assess in western canada i could have made a ton of money on it but i don't think that was where we wanted this to go the if you're going to have an organization such as this it's going to require sponsorship it's going to require mm -hmm. um that's just about good governance having committees with set scope that aren't allowed to um, drift outside of that scope. And approved workbooks is an example of ITRA's mission creep, right? Going away, away from, are we just assessing people to say that they're competent? And now we're writing a standard, our three levels of tactical driving. And now we're saying you have to use a workbook that we agree with, right? So that's all crap. Let's just stick with one job. Let's just assess objectively whether or not uh, Mark here can actually tie figure eight. I know. <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> Come on, Richard's Facebook destroyed me the other day. I can't use figure tens anymore or nines or eights. Wait, why was it? <laughs> uh, figure nines and tens, the fad that has gladly died. Yeah. Um, let's throw this one out, should NFPA? put in some sort of assessment inside of their standard or should it just remain as a standard alone? Well, if, if you follow the, I can't remember the number now, but the stand, the standard that IFSEC follows. So the international fire service accreditation council, as you guys are familiar with or pro board, that is a standard number that does the audited testing for say the 10 six standard, right? So there's the testing standard and then the testing standard outlines how you test the NF, the 1006 standard. So that whole concept is fine, but it's not readily available and accessible to all industrial players. It's more, you know, there's only one authority having jurisdiction allowed to hold the golden IFSAC seal, as we know, uh, yep. or there's only one AHDA for pro board. So that creates a bit yep. of a... A bottleneck in case where a board member of pro board decides to open a private company in an area that already has 
multiple uh, agencies with pro board certification and all of a sudden his private company has the ability to issue pro board seals. So nepotism is... I, I didn't know Purely anything about that, but that would be another grenade tossed out there, but I, I, don't, I don't know the background on that one. See, the four-letter word that I think of with pro board and IFSOC is cult. They're, they're, they're set up to, to, to monopolize the industry, um, and, and that's, they're not widely available. They're set up to create mon monopolies in, within areas, and they also don't require independent assessment. They really, they care about the paperwork, the test, the, the checklists, and some of the administrative stuff. Which is exactly what ITRA felt like for a while. Yeah. It became the same thing. I think we've all written an IFSOC or a pro board test, and you can tell right away by question two that it's a test bank test. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. So It has so, limitations, but the, I think the concept of that testing, at least... We, we do the IFSAC testing for our local AHGAs. I think some of you guys do as well. And we also, we teach and then someone from the AHGA comes and does the testing. In the concept of it, I think has merit. It still needs to be somewhat third party. You can't test your own organization. Uh, I think that's, that's the kind of stuff we're all after with ITRA. Yeah. Some, some framework around doing a test. I think the other, I think the other kind of elephant in the room on it is I think there's a lot of well inten well intentioned um, agencies that provide training and like pro board certification, but that like are kind of like governed by the bureaucracy of it all, right? Because like I know Sprat, I know with with ITRA, um, it was like an eight person per day uh, assessment cap, which I think is the most you can kind of reasonably do to assess every single person on every single skill, but when you have um, certification days where there's 20 people being assessed by four um, and, and they're grouping together for, you know, for certain sections. Um, I think they're doing the best they can with what they have. And, and I, I don't mean to give um, these certification agencies, you know, a, a get out of jail free card, but I think until we can mirror um, locally, what agencies like Sprat, you know, as Kevin mentioned, are kind of doing well to say you are tested on every skill. Um, and if that means certification takes three days, because everyone has, to have a one to eight ratio, I, I think that might help. The, the, the test back tests, I absolutely agree. I haven't seen, uh, it's an ongoing frustration with people we work with on, and everyone on how those test bank tests are working. Does it make you a good rope rescuer at the end of the day because you pass the 50 question multiple choice from everything from you know, rope construction, what kind of socks to gloves you wear in rope rescue? I don't think so, but it's the practical skills that needs the assessment so that the instructor is not influencing or helping along at the end of the day. And, you know, and it's great to see that all you guys, like Mark mentioned in our last, in our last podcast that we did together, we're all essentially competition, but we want the same thing at the end of the day, which is great to see. We want to basically have trust in our industry by validating each other which which i think is great and if you look at other bona fide testing organizations there's no one that trains and tests at the same time any sort of certification board there's a outside administered test and that's the big gap in our industry we don't have it 
I think, right, there's metrics. And Craig, we talked about this in, in Albuquerque last year. I mean, for a test to be considered valid, I mean, there, there's metrics, right, where you should have a certain percent failure rate. Well, that, that was, and, and if everyone passes every time. That was one of the things that really appealed to Kevin and I was the idea, Colin, <laughs> of that third-party independent validation with ITRA. You know, because of the program, because you're sitting down and taking a test bank test, is it really evaluating appropriately the objectives that, that you need to master? I, I would I would I would say no. Yes, so be it. You know, I think the concept of testing with a red and spread has always had merit. It was great. At the end of that course, we've all been through it. Someone comes in, does gives you a test, has no favors to the company that's administrating the course or anyone that's in it. And uh, and usually significance significance of it is that a lot of the courses I've been on, there's always been at least one person right. fail. Uh, so that shows the uh, I guess the honor in it that we're all looking for. The inverse rescue bell curve. <laughs> <laughs> I think just to touch on on the the last question Mark threw out, should NPA be involved? No, I think NPA is doing as Kevin, you said, a really good job these days of writing some objective performance-based standards. And yeah. that's their bread and butter. And, and the fantastically, but NFPA's normal five-year revision cycle. Um, I mean, NFPA is not necessarily cutting edge, but it's... Space Force, man. It does keep getting revised, right? Mm -hmm. And there's good stuff there. They should just stick to their job of setting standards. ITRA should just stick to its original intent of evaluating us against whatever standard it is that we want to be evaluated against um and everybody stays in their lane I, I, kevin I, I think you just hit kind of the crux of why itra didn't make it in its initial setup and why there's so much frustration is we all believed in what you said we all believed that we were joining an organization that was about fair independent assessment what we are joining was an organization run essentially run like an international emergency management association that was based on administration paperwork and world domination. Mm -hmm. the, the scope was bigger than the, than the bill of goods. You stopped at world domination. I thought it was like planetary, <laughs> maybe even this cosmos, right? <laughs> yeah. Just world. I heard the astronaut standard was actually in rendition at that point. <laughs> so I think, uh, Probor Nifsack were mentioned. There's some value. I don't think there's a lot of value there for the cost of it, uh, personally. But Nifsack and Probor are um, cemented in the academic world's accreditation process, and that's a completely different animal than what we're talking about. And there's no reason you couldn't run a course with an Nifsack or Probor CL that's also ITRA uh, evaluated if you wanted to go to, down that road. That'd be a great option. And if, if ITRA could come in and assess a, a thousand six course and you could have another option other than IFSAC to get the, get the certificate at the end of the day, that'd be great as well. It, Mark, can you just, um, transcribe this conversation and send it in as our feedback <laughs> i'll just throw daryl on the link and just the way it'll go yeah i'm going to shift gears then and um one of the comments or one of the points that was brought up in the background 
are the standards, and I'm not talking just NFPA here, like CE, ANSI, CSA, OSHA, those standards and the testing to those standards starting to become a cost barrier for small manufacturers to make equipment. Like are, are the days of the Gibbs Ascender, I'm not saying good or bad about the Gibbs Ascender, but the days of somebody making something in the backyard and putting it out the door finished and should it be finished or is it all going to be cmcs and harkins and petzels moving forward because they're the only people that confront that kind of cash through ul why does it need ul tested go ahead yeah. <laughs> you know i mean rock existed for a really long time without testing any of his stuff you know he was a iso 900 manufacturing standard he was, his first CNC machine was in his parents' garage. And we we bought everything he made <laughs> without asking. So no, I think there is room for it. I think with the what's making things more cost prohibitive now is the cost of the machinery more than anything for a startup is really expensive. Yeah, I mean I um I, I was waiting for you, Cliff, to mention that because I know we've talked about this with some other products before. Um I think in an in industry, right, in whatever industry you're in, I, I think the importance of the gear you're using, having a third-party standard and test on it is, is important in 2020. I don't, I don't think we can get away with, Mark, like you said, someone like someone, you know, banging it out on their CNC machine. Um, I think for like recreational use, I think, you know, that, that's, a, that's, that's a much different story, but I think in, in the professional world, whether it's, you know, fire rescue industry, access i think that, that is an important thing to have a, a independently tested um piece of gear that that's you know to that accepted standard in your industry mark i'm gonna i'm gonna turn your question your answer to in a different direction okay i don't think it's the cost of testing i think it's the cost of overcoming the market power of the large manufacturers who convince the buyers that everything has to meet a certain standard and those same manufacturers being on the being on the committees that write the standards so when you're the new guy and you have a great product your ability to break into the market is significantly hampered because the market has already told people that your product isn't good well there is a hand grenade <laughs> yeah so I, I think some of it, I mean, Cliff, you and I have talked about this before. Some of it just becomes just just becomes market size and and kind of previously captured market. If you if you bring if you bring a new widget that may be better than the existing widget, but the existing widget is being sold by a major manufacturer that <laughs> that helps write the standard and then helps write the, the grant processes and decides what products are available for what grants you're already frozen out of the market. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Let me take this one step further then as I look through my notes. There's been comments now about things like, and I'll go right specifically to NFPA 1983, you know, dictating that rope has to be certain characteristics built into it when that rope is made. Is that limiting growth? Are we missing the boat? We don't have eight mil controlled descent devices, for instance. We don't have, you know, we're not using parallax or braid on braid. And maybe back in the day, braid on braid was terrible. Maybe we're at a point now with manufacturing quality of rope that 
static current mantle isn't the way forward. I mean, there's a lot of unicorn constructions, a lot of thermal mold, whatever you want to call it. Is that limiting innovation? I think there's still, a, there's still an ability there for early adopters to assess a new piece of equipment and start and use it. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be third-party certified. I agree with what Kevin said. For the same reason we were talking about independent assessment through ITRA, manufacturers also need to have an independent assessment if you choose to do it as well. But that doesn't mean you can't have a great piece of equipment or you can't be a great rope technician for that matter and not be certified. It just comes down to then it's buyer beware uh, where you do your own assessment and make sure like Cliff said, is the manufacturer using any sort of ISO audited quality control procedures? What are their control procedures? If any, there has to be some sort of, you know, you have, you have to assess your supplier for any sort of piece of equipment. And I don't think there's anything prohibiting us from uh, exploring new pieces of kit the way the standards are written right now, but we certainly can't do away with uh, third party certs. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I did a, a, a kind of a deep dive uh, Mark when you asked that in the notes. Um, and, and I think part of it, we are using, right. Like, bailout kits and, and RIT and search rope. Um, you know, I, I think for many years we've been using like airman fibers and um, a lot of departments are using dynamic rope for, for lead climbing applications. Um, and I went looking into um, 1858, which is on, on selection and, and care and all that stuff. Um, and it, it even says in, in there that the type of fiber, uh, you know, including this, this, and this, not limited to shall be considered the construction, uh, including but not limited to single braid, laid, double braid, um, so I do think the standards kind of support innovation. Um, guys bail out all the time on like 7.5, right. And, and feel super cool with it. Um, I think when we talk about, you know, the application of smaller, better, uh, and, and like some of the courses you guys run is application specific, right? I mean, Craig, you've said it before. If, if you don't need to, you know, if you can bring your, your big fire truck with your half inch life safety rope, burning it all in the backyard just because you know there's some 11 mil that's you know 36 can i think looking at the application of everything is, is super important too I, I actually kevin i think it's more important uh when you bail out on that seven five do you have a rope tailor or not gonna go there are we <laughs> i'm gonna bring up something kevin because it's gonna be a bit of a tangent and i'm gonna be slightly cryptic about it but like I have a bit of a concern with the NFPA bailout standard limiting rope to a size. So there's departments that I know of that have now had to make the decision, for instance, do I have a buddy breather on my pack or do I put a bailout kit in my pack? So now based on a moment in time with limited context and definite, you know, no subjectivity in a fire hall, we've now decided to swap one piece of life safety equipment for another piece of life safety equipment based on the opinion of, you know, a five person committee at that particular moment in space. Why are we limiting ourselves to seven, five? I, for instance, and I'm not even talking six mil, I'm not talking trace, I'm talking smaller than that. I'm gonna have to be slightly cryptic, at least till the end of January, for equipment that you can bail out on with anti-panic, works with gloves, and you would no longer need to now start making decisions between different pieces of life safety gear. So in that case, is the standard creating something that's limiting or progression? Yeah, so in, in that 
um, you know, in that specific instance, I would say, yeah. But back to, to Colin's point, I think, um, you know, as the NFPA, NFPA cycles are, are kind of updated, once that piece of kit hits the market um, and, you know, there's, there's research behind it and you can say, yep, this is what it's for and this is the size. Absolutely. I think it should change. And if NFPA doesn't change, um, I think, you know, that kind of confirms your, your frustration with it. Well, I mean, we've, we've seen it happen just in the last 10 years. You know, we've gone from personal to light to now technical, right? So the definitions change. It's, dro it's driven change, innovation, you know, into what's acceptable and what's not. And it opened up a whole new realm of, you know, different ways of doing things. So it's slow to change. You know, you don't want to change in every year because then nobody would be able to keep up. But, you know, I think the cycle is... It, it just depends on where you are. You know, if you're, you know, where we are and what we're talking about, it's always never fast enough. You know, but for most places, it's it's probably like, oh crap, it changed again. You know, because now they got to retool their packs, they got to retool their gear, they got to retool everything. And that's where the cost and the frustration comes in. How do you maintain these programs? You know, in accordance with change. So yeah, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's an impossible perfect balance. It's supposed to be. Well, I mean, Mark, you've mentioned it before, right? I think it was for instructor standard, where like the you know the book reps in the room were like, "Ooh, hey, time out. We 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 can't we can't you know we can't roll that out yet because we still have to get two more cycles out of the books." That was a serious conversation that occurred when I sat on the yeah ten forty ten fourteen. I can't remember what the standard is now. And and all joking aside, I mean, I think right is that a necessary evil? Yeah. To to change, I, I think. Um, well, it definitely grounds change. And I mean, to Cliff's point, the escape standard is a new standard. I mean, guys will say, what are you talking about? It's been on like a number of revisions, but I've been doing this since like 96. Like the escape standard is a newer standard. It's, you know. And NFP 1983 did a number of years ago, they dropped the diameter requirements for uh, G-rated rope um, in anticipation of 11 millimeter rope being able to meet the 40K MBS, which it now um, well, Sterling had one quite a while ago, uh, and now we have multiple options of 11 mil at 40 KN. But NFPA did that um, prior to those options being available on the market. So pe people often forget that one. So it's not always behind. Most that, of the time. I think there is an opportunity yeah. for the small guy to get involved with the standards. It's, I must say, over the past couple of years, I've got a little bit more knowledge about it. And you can get involved and for a small manufacturer uh these standards organizations do take the time to make sure there's a good cross representation across the board between various types of manufacturers user groups that sort of thing and uh if you want to put the time into it you can get involved and shape those standards it's open to anybody well to kevin's point that may be why you want reps from industry on these standards because they can turn around and say you know within the next cycle or two of this revision we're going to have gear out that's going to you know exceed your standard at this point yeah and further to that even if you don't like the standard all the more reason to get involved some of them aren't going away you know nfpa the fire services are going to jettison it next week <laughs> yeah like what the fire service is known for rapid change mark come on yeah all the reason all the reason to but, uh, uh 
all the reason to get involved. Like all these standards, whenever they go out, whenever any of these standards go out for public comment, doesn't matter what standard you're talking about, not many people get back. It's true. I, I think Kevin brought up a good point, maybe inadvertently a few Which minutes Kevin, ago. Yeah, Canadian um, American one. He talked about cutting edge. Um, <laughs> you're Kevin, the Canadian Kevin. Uh, the, the standards shouldn't be written to the cutting edge. And I think sometimes we get frustrated that when new techniques or new products hit, that they don't meet the standard. Um, that, that's that's going to be the way it always works. You can't you can't write a predictive standard against something that doesn't yet exist or hasn't. Well, it's interesting. Kevin and I were driving back from the ski uh, hole last night. He brought up a Jocko podcast where the guy was talking about black belts, and he had said, "Well, you know, the next black belt has to be as good as us." And Jocko said, "Well, wait a second. We got a black belt 15 years ago. He has to be as good as us when we did this." And I think a lot of people in our industry might forget that. What does that standard need to be? Does it need to be the way I am now or the way I was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the way, you know, Craig is now, or maybe the way <laughs> Craig will be next week. Uh, right? Yeah. Slightly angrier. Well, you know, that's one thing about standards. And I guess that is one of the reasons for that slower implementation is if we're going to change it, is it actually necessary? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the, the riders on those standards should move and pretty I slowly. I think that's it's that's a necessity. That, like, you know, as been previously mentioned, NFP has done a pretty good job of being objective and not prescriptive um, lately, definitely at least for the last decade uh, within the technical rescue, rescue standards. Um, and whenever I see a new chapter or a new something in NFPA, it tends to be more on the prescriptive side and then it, it kind of, it opens up a little more in, in successive editions. But we, the people in this group, our peers, need to do, um, obviously, yeah, a better job educating the clientele that this is the NFPA standard or this is the standard that's applicable to your industry. You don't necessarily have to be 100% in the standard, right? Perhaps some in some areas, definitely on the regulatory side, you do. But in the NFPA standard side, the NFPA standard side just says you have to be able to operate an independent belay system. Nowhere does it say you cannot operate a two rope tension system, right? So we need to be very careful about how we, we teach this. And I think most people in this call probably have read these standards um, versus the people that are reciting rope, something that they've never actually read. Well, Kev, even in, I think it was like 2017 edition of 1006, there's like an asterisk next to like dedicated main and untensioned belay. There is. That if you go to the, the explanatory material, it says this is not meant to replace other options that have been proven to work. Um, but I, like you said, I think a lot of guys just, you know, don't go looking in there and, and don't understand that, you know, three years ago, NFPA said twin tension was okay. Or, or and, and before that, they had definitely not said it wasn't okay. Um, and, and, back to i think you know 20 minutes ago 1006 prescribes like the minimum job performance requirements that you should be able to perform at those levels but it also says you know you can exceed those and in most in most regulatory situations and standard situations you can adopt something that skirts the standard may not be approved yet but if you have a a good reason uh where it may meet or exceed the standard, then you could actually use it and still be fitting into your regulatory authority or standard. 
Okay, cool. Let's change gears a little bit here. This might be a quick one. What is the uncoupling of Petzl and CMC due to our industry? James, I haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> well, you're going to pick on me, Mark, right off the bat, huh? <laughs> you're wearing a Petzl t-shirt. You know what? I think, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's a good thing for the industry. Um, I think at some point when you have two big names that are, are, are grouped together, you can kind of, it gets too big, right? It, it, it tends to the, the monopolistic side of things. And I'm certainly not uh, insinuating that Petzl and or CMC is, is monopolistic. Um, I'll say that. But I think, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, and, and potentially it leads to more innovation as well, because now you've, you've taken two manufacturers that were working very close together that are now parting ways. Uh, you may see different products, different methods kind of evolve because of that separation. I, I think it's a good thing. I also think it was kind of inevitable, right? I mean, CMC has been kind of walking this really fine line for a while of like, do we make stuff or do we sell stuff? And they make really good harnesses. They make a lot of um, other good kit and accessories, but for a long time, most of their hardware has been a third party manufacturer. Um, and, you know, they, they sold a lot of Petzl product on their website that they didn't make. But now that with, with Harkin and, and Rock and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of hands in that pot. Um, so I, I do think them stopping selling Petzl stuff was, was going to happen sooner or later. Um, you know, you can't go on Petzl's website and buy any CMC products. You never, you know, you've never been able to do that. That's true. Petzl's always been true to themselves. Yeah. I don't, I actually don't think it's going to affect anything. Um, it's not like CMC monopolized Petzl, right? It's not like you had to go through CMC to buy Petzl. Right. Like you do certain other things they have contracts with like the MPD or, you know, other particular pieces of gear. You can buy Petzl on ARB sites. You can buy Petzl on REC sites. I actually don't think it affects anything. Now, if anything, it's just, it's, it'll, it'll lead to uh, more innovative, different types of kit on the market. Might make it a little harder to pick between a Petzl or a CMC product. Like a swivel pulley? I think there, there's a potential downside. Um, and it's it's an educated it's an uneducated downside that there are a lot of departments that just buy full CMC kit. That's what they've always done. They just go online and they click buy 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 and buy whatever whatever is put it put together in that kit. When that kit no longer includes some Petzl product, I don't know if they're going to change their buying habits, but they're going to get a less diverse, like maybe less functional kit. Well, and, and I think we may to, see some backsliding. I'm sorry, Craig. Go ahead. Uh, what? Well, to hat. Craig's point. <laughs> no, I'm done. You're yeah. wearing the Petzl t-shirt. I got to listen to you. Why do you think I brought him on? To, uh, to Craig's point, though, I think, you know, because of departments just buying that prepackaged, you know, CMC fire rescue kit, I think Petzl's trying really hard to enter the North American fire service market. Oh, absolutely. And maybe, and maybe that has had some, some factor for their separation, you know, because CMC is so entrenched in that market already, this separation gives 
Entrenched. Gives Petzl some independence in that. The market. Right, Cliff, you're 100% correct. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if the viewers heard that, Cliff. Seriously. Oh, okay. Uh, repay podcast, was it 47? <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have, they um, have positioned themselves um, uh, a little too strongly in this market. They, they, they convince everybody that they are one-stop shopping, that they have everything you need. And they've made it very easy to Craig's point. And it, that there will prevent innovation. It's a, when nobody's thinking about what they're buying or what they really need, and if they're just told this is what you need and they don't actually vet that, yeah, that's a problem. But they, they have definitely positioned themselves very strongly into this market where they've convinced a lot of people that they, they have everything you need and you don't even have to find out why you need it. We're just going to sell it. The problem isn't just with CMC. I mean, and and the problem. I mean, the, the companies are doing what they do. They're they're trying to maximize profit. That's, That's capitalism. Right. Yeah, but we we have the same problem with Petzl, right? We have now on the market some really great personal descenders, right? The ID has been around for twenty years and is almost ubiquitous um, as a personal descender, a mechanical device. Uh, especially in the North American market in the European, it is markets a little more diverse. Um, it's actually hard to get away from the Petzl ID because it's so ubiquitous. So yeah, it's not just CMC. It's, it's, it's Petzl and it's, um, it's, we, we really want to be trying and showcasing and using a variety of equipment um, so that manufacturers have a place to sell their stuff so that we actually, expose ourselves to different stuff and our, our students are, are the people that we expose equipment to get to see different stuff. I think it's, it's not just about what the companies are doing at the bigger level. Right. Speaking so it does. Has anybody seen, there's a device from, from a manufacturer in Poland. It looks like an ID, but it actually runs both ropes through it. No, I'll sure. send you a link later. I've been, I'm trying to, I've been working with Alan Sun trying, trying to get a hold of one. It looks pretty cool. So, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I've been wondering who's going to come out with the two DCDs sandwiched. Yeah, my heart just device. fluttered a bit. Uh. <laughs> Wait, so you can double clutch on yourself? Is that the <laughs> <laughs> Mark? You need to you edit that. as long as you're yeah. Yeah. yeah, you have to tail it down. It's going to be like the, the club sandwich of descent control so, devices. Let's let's make this question more challenging, or maybe sure. e even easier. We'll find out. Does the does the Petzl CMC divorce only impact CMC's catalog because of the ASAP? Is that it? Yes. I think so. I, I think as soon as the clutch hit the market, you know, I, I, like I said, I think this was inevitable because if you if you go through CMC's catalog, um, like the ID, the ID has been around forever. To Kevin's point, um, and and CMC didn't really offer another personal descent control device um, as soon as the clutch is yeah <laughs> that's true um, you know as soon as the, the clutch hit the market I, I think this this was inevitable for them um, but they put out a lot of guidance on like double clutching with an ASAP because um, that's a product that they just don't have yet and, and Petzl has is a good product there I think um, 
do I think the CMC Rescue School is going to stop using the ASAP? I doubt it. Um, but but I, I I think that's like the the biggest impact for them. Why why would they keep selling you know the ID with when they have the crutch now? Why are they selling the NPD? The price went up. So here's a <laughs> here's a question then about we're we talking a little bit about manufacturers. We'll tangent slightly off and just looking at some of the feedback online from Grimp Day Asia. And you can see a lot of materials and equipment that look very similar to other materials and equipment that are out there. Or hybrids thereof. <laughs> hybrids thereof. Is this going to be a factor in the industry? Is that sort of, I don't want to go as far as saying ripping off somebody else's stuff, but some people may. Why would you not? <laughs> Some people may say that. Is that going to become a problem? Are we all of a sudden going to see the knockoff of something coming back into our marketplace and causing issues? Mark, do you mean um, like, you know, knockoffs like uh, not actually manufactured by a reputable company or like product ideas that have been retooled a little bit? I'll, I'll go with both. I mean, I've played with carabiners from certain spots in the world that I was like, Oh my gosh, like I'll go get the one my keys are on and I'll go wrap off of that. But I've also seen things like the yak pulley from Keylass. It is part pencil, part rock. Like, and, I mean, you can line it up, hold the hole over the rock pulley. Um, and then it's got the same pencil sheave assembly. It's, I mean, it's almost a perfect match. Is this going to create problems in the industry? I think we, we, for us, we just leave that to the patent lawyers to figure out. Uh, but practically at the end of the day, that's where the third party certification comes in for equipment. And that's where for us as a user, it, it shows you're a player in the game. If a manufacturer is third party certifying their equipment and they're making those steps, it doesn't mean that they might not have great kit that hasn't gone through the testing process yet or maybe it doesn't even meet the standard, but it's cutting edge revolutionary. But you're still, I, I, it, there has to be standards to keep just someone out of the market from just ripping off a piece of equipment and getting it out there to our users. I, I don't think we'd want that. You know, honestly, I, I was taking that from like a forgery standpoint, right? Where like, you can go on Amazon and, and buy something that, that says CMC Petzl Rock that's not, that was made, you know, cast somewhere and you have no idea what it is. Um, and it's something that I think is super dangerous all the time and, and is dangerous uh, when, when guys are trying to save a few bucks and buying kit from, from Amazon and they can get it tomorrow um, instead of sourcing from like a reputable supplier that isn't actually a, a dealer for that, that brand, I think is, is a huge problem already. Well, just to Kevin's point, that's kind of where I was going with this. I've talked to CMC rescue school guys that say they show up to teach in certain countries and 50% of the gear sitting in front of them is counterfeit. And now... If we're getting into a world where, you know, got to go out and get three quotes for my city in order to buy X, Y, or Z, and some unscrupulous vendor is picking up stuff that's counterfeit, how do I know the difference is the end user at that point? I mean, me personally, Mark, I know I've, I've had guys who, who have asked about like buying stuff on Amazon, and I have always directed them to go to the, the dealer, you know, the manufacturer's website. And, and see if they're listed as a dealer. Because most, like CMC, Petzl, I think, I, I believe Rock, you can go look and, and find a, a dealer um, and at least confirm that they're actually like authorized to sell. 
I, I think is the, the, the user beware statement there, right? This is a problem uh, in the rope access industry uh, and in the climbing world as well. There, um, for a few years now, I know there are some people out there that are, you know, have become adept at tracking down the numbers on EN certified carabiners. To, because there's, there's a list if you're manufacturing EN certified carabiner, your company has to be on the list or whatever. Um, it's not a problem I've seen so much so far in with like fire department, industrial rescue teams, but I can only assume it's coming. Um, and yeah, we're going to run into that. You were going to show up and we're, I mean, as it is, I show up at an industrial site and I look at the gear cache. I'm like, okay, we're going to work with this stuff today, but this part of your gear cache, we're not going to work with today. Um, you know, you try and be polite about that, but I can, I can see showing up at that same site a month later and looking at a whole boatload of fresh, shiny new, counterfeit equipment now what do i do with that right so it's a it's a problem and i think the reputable dealer supply chain is is probably our our, our, our has to be our default here. i think part of it's education from us when you're with a client there's no margin in gear right gear rescue gear is almost commodity item at this point if you look around at, at dealers you're the pricing varies by minute percentage if you're going buying from reputable reputable dealers, if you find a price that's so far below that, you're you're, you're off the reservation, and and you sh it it should raise a bunch of flags. So trying to beat the system on price, you're gonna get bad gear. Uh, so I think it's it's on us to educate and say you you can't really you can't really do better than the normal pricing from a good dealer. And, and if if you are, you're putting yourself at risk. Okay. Let's deep dive into one of these other ones. Um, one of the ones that was sent to me, drill down into the differences in and between how to use different publications, NFPA, OSHA, ANSI, and a realistic way to assess and layer in local industry specific requirements. Who sent that one? Yeah, I did. Uh, nominate Cliff. There you go. I'll let you speak to it first, Cliff. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, unless you're, you know, a, a career volunteer fire service, and even then, you know, it's, you know, if, if you only went with the NFPA, you'd be doing yourself a disservice, right? Um, there's a lot of good information out there, you know, and, and then when you, you, you look at certain things, if, if you look at like ANSI fall protection standards, you're, you would be a better rescue rope technician by understanding what you're walking into if you do get called to an industrial site or even just a, a, a work site, understanding you know what they're using for Moshe, what they're what the ANSI standards for the stuff that somebody you know just doing brick pointing on a swing scaffold is using. So when you get there, you have an expectation of what equipment you're expecting to see, um, a better understanding that you know was it uh, you know did the equipment fail or is the equipment still you know, did it do its job and is it still in a serviceable condition or do I need to get the person off this faster? You know, is this, how, how fast am I chasing the clock on this? So I think by understanding the different standards between emergency response, solely emergency response and industry standards, it's just better education. And then we can, you know, liberally steal from those good ideas because, you, know, you look at some of the things that we, we, you know, we've been taught over the last 20, 30 years about what fall protection for the fire service is. 
you know, they, we're using a Gibbs ascender. Well, Gibbs told you straight out, don't fall on it. And yet we used it for years as, you know, travel restraint, but fully expected that if you, you know, it was like you never had it tight, right? It was always loose. You could have fell on it. Or the, the Purcell prusnik or just the regular prusnik, you know, falling on those. So I think what we were told worked, kind of worked, but it, there are better options out there. And, you know, stealing from known fall protection standards, why reinvent the wheel? Just poach. So, and they work. You know, the, these, the, uh, you know some of the things they have out there. The, uh, a couple of years ago, they came out with the, the small uh, self-retracting lanyards, the two of them on the back of the harness. Yes, it's a little heavy, but it works great. You know, for stuff like that, you have to understand what you're walking into and maybe one or two of those in a kit. You know, if you if you have a heavy industrial response to your area, you know, you'd watch, you, you'd show up and be like, hey, guys, come with me. And now you have to follow this person that's now using a twin self-retracting lanyard to get to a position safely. And we look like we got a couple of club feet between the bags we're carrying and trying to follow safely you know, to an area where he knows how to operate. So, it, yeah, I, I think we can learn a lot from those, those different things, and I think they do need to be layered. So, you know, you know, we talk about lockout tagout. Lockout tagout is pretty foreign. It's in different parts of the fire service, a very foreign concept. And yet industry, that's every day. That, that's starting the day with a cup of coffee. So we, I think we need to learn from those things. And the different standards, uh, you know, different publications do that. You know, why, you know, why not look at the, some of the stuff they're doing for wilderness rescue? I know you get, you know, Craig and uh, Mark and I have talked about this, you know, like how do we, how do we take the objective of what some of these more entrenched things like the belay standards and things like that, but then how do we take that and expand it just out of the fire service and make it work for other things? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things that can be layered over this and, and, and pushed into innovation. Cliff, I'll ask you, I'll ask you a question. Um, I don't even know, you know, forget layering. I mean, like if we're going to, we're going to take a rope tech class in the fire service, don't you think that like a, a fall protection class, like an OSHA approved fall protection class should be a prereq for that? I mean, cause we're talking, you know, there's, there's work positioning, you know, travel restraint, fall arrest. I mean, you know, sometimes people think that's like splitting hairs, but I think if you ask the average person, to, to define those, you know, you realize that those are very different things. Um, and I think a lot of guys will use those terms interchangeably. Um, you know, when you talk about like the importance of it, working at height, I, I think taking an OSHA class is, is a, a real solution well, to that. I, yeah, I mean, ideally, if everybody had the next day, <clears throat> no, no, sorry. Uh, you know what? A standard fall one day, but now you're talking about increasing the length of the course by one day. And then how much of that is relevant? So I, ideally, sure, I, it'd be great. You know, more education is for the most part better until you get saturated, but or oversaturated. Um, but how much? One of the good. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I thought you're done. <laughs> one... <laughs> One of the good things about NFPA being non-prescriptive, but it also creates a challenge, is that you can embed, say, some 
OSHA or CSA type fall protection schools of thought into an NFPA course if you have the right instructor. There's nothing preventing you from doing it. There's JPRs in there now where you have to <laughs> climb a structure and assist someone in, in who's hanging yeah, on a lanyard. So it doesn't say a fall arrest lanyard, but you can interpret that. You can either teach them how to lead climb up said tower or go up with a belay line, or you can teach them how to climb up with a, a twin SRL, like Kevin said. There's nothing preventing us from doing that. Uh, it's just the, the instructors, I think, kind of need to embrace it and embrace these, these schools of thought. We've come from a school of thought. There was like the fall protection school of thought, the NFPA firefighter type school of thought, and the rope access school of thought. They've never really wanted to cross over each other because everyone's had their, you know, let's face it, there might be a little bit of contest in each one. But the fact is, you can draw on the three schools of thought now and teach a course that meets NFPA standards if you wanted to. And you can have rope access skills, fall protection skills in there from all three schools Absolutely. of thought. You, would you call it ITRA? Bobbing <laughs> 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 bump. Yeah, that's definitely. Honestly, orig originally I dreamed that ITRA would be that sort of thing. Yeah, that could, you know, take the schools of thought, bring them together, mash them up into something that was uh, a bit more practical for industry. Because I don't think the industrial, the industrial bracket is not well represented. You've got everything from a a guy who's done a fall protection course to a two to four hours with a R550 or some one of these mechanical devices. Uh, you've got someone like that who says they're an industrial rescuer. You've got an NFPA trained and certified firefighter who goes on industrial sites, but honestly hasn't got a clue about industry, but they're an industrial ERT guy. And then you've got a rope access guy who might be a level three with a pile of bells and, you know, bells and whistles and tricks on how to do rope, but doesn't know anything about patient care or putting someone in a stretcher. So someday the three schools of thought need to be blended together. And I think, uh, you know, by having more and more it is, but it has to be. Rope, rope uh, access has made a huge impact in the fire service in the last five to six years. Yeah, it's, it's definitely driving change to making things more efficient. I mean, you know, the biggest thing I, realized after I took my first SPRAC class was there's just there's a simplicity and an elegance to the systems that we just completely overbuild in the fire service and it's uh it's definitely driving change to make things faster and more simple yeah I mean giving guys on my crew everybody now has a on when we go up a tower crane life is just so much easier wait Kevin are we <laughs> our tarex, yeah. 50 percent of this calls are uh, our Shirt. It's okay, James. Dip your sweater again. Yeah, that's the last period on. Yeah. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting point, though. And I mean, I know when I started in the fire service, we're going back a few decades now, probably same as Kevin. It was fall protection was don't fall. And lockout was don't turn it on when your hand's in there. And I, I can honestly say I don't know if we've progressed very much far, 
farther than that. I mean, we definitely tie off now, but half the people you look on an edge, if they fell on their fall protection, would likely break something. I think it's I think it's industrial providers, Mark, that are the conduit to it, to be honest with you, bridging these three schools of thought, because I know I, I brought people into our organization, might be a, a senior firefighter type who is has a wealth of knowledge, sat that guy down next to a IRATA Sprat level three type who's also a wealth of knowledge. And I've sat between them trying to convince them both that you don't know as much as the other guy, right? And, uh, and sometimes it's a hard conversation to have. And after a while, they'll come out humble and realize that they can both learn from each other. And then you throw in a, throw in a pre-rigged, pre-engineered fall protection rescue kit. And we all have a look at that with some SRLs, you know, and uh, there's benefit of, to it at the end of the day. Uh, and you do learn from, learn from the other schools of thought. Some, some of the most fun classes I've had are where you get, you get rope access guys and fire together in the same course. And towards the end, you start to give them complex problems and just watch the different leadership styles. The, uh, and the experienced fire guy gets in charge, does a great job of laying out a plan, take 30 or 40 minutes to diagram, is, is super dialed and super complex and it's gonna take six hours to execute. You give that same problem, put a rope access guy in charge, and he goes and solves it and leaves seven guys standing in the corner. And, and does it solo. There's and and find getting them to find that middle ground and see that the rope access techniques are super helpful in rescue. And on the rope access side, learning that you may want to involve more people to solve your problem and, and adopt a little bit more of a team approach benefits them. And and when they hit that middle ground, it's pretty fun to watch. It is, it's pretty awesome. And uh you know, the thing about rope access is piles of rope tricks, but we've sat them with emergency responder types. And we know we, you, you can become a level three rope access technician and have never actually responded to an incident. Oh, definitely. And, you know, the old trope was firefighters trying to rescue other firefighters. And the first time they saw a piece of industrial fall protection equipment was when they're actually called upon to rescue somebody from a busted swing stage or something. Right. And but the same can also be said of rope access people, rope access people trying to rescue other rope access workers. Um, so they, and they sh they shy away from the traditional fall protection equipment. In fact, the twin leg lanyards were removed from the whole SPRAT curriculum uh, last year. So a rope access technician could hit level three and not know what a twin leg lanyard is or have never seen a five-eighths lifeline and one of those goddamn industrial rope grabs, <laughs> right? Um, now that stuff does exist. Okay, it's kind of spread around in a couple of chapters and between uh, 1006 uh, technician and uh, rope technician and, and tower rescue, but they are supposed to be exposed to the stuff and know how to manipulate it so that they can rescue somebody from it. I think it just it's just good practice to... Um, say, here you go, here's a piece of industrial fall protection equipment, here's how you use it, here's how you can use it to make yourself safe before you even learn how to rescue somebody from it. And with the silence on that, I think it's changing gear time. <laughs> um, 
Another one that was sent in here, and I'm paraphrasing, anchor is not a requirement in the NFPA, but the plates and anchor straps are off the chart. Industry uses 22K and 5,000 pounds when it's engineered, installed, and tested, or three times anticipated working load. Now, I don't know if that's a mistype, because I know us, I think we're two times MAF up here. Maybe just a different terminology. No, if you can't reach the 22KN, I think it's a good thought exercise to work through the better understand the forces from end to end of what you can expect and predict. And before we talk about this, we've got a chart that we give our instructors, depending on whether you're working under CSA, whether you're working under, you know, like traditional fall protection, uh, rope access, temporary lifeline, you know, temporary anchor, there's a range of, you know, anchor strengths from 12 kilonewtons to 40. You know, portable anchor NFPA 36, right? And so, yeah, there's a huge, huge, you know, variance from 12 to 40 or 12 to 36 at least. So I don't remember who brought this up, but uh, let's start on that one. I, I think it's, uh, I, I kind of jump at the NFPA portable anchor 36. How the hell do you measure that in the field, right? We need we need to be educating people to evaluate a system and say, does based on my experience and understanding of the engineering here and what I'm dealing with, is this strong enough? Because, like, well, thirty thirty six is the MBS. Nobody should be going anywhere near that. So when you, uh, I know uh, Rich Delaney's been pushing the last couple of years talking about design load. Uh, Kong is the only manufacturer that actually writes in their paperwork what their design load is and that everything, nothing they sell should ever be past one quarter. I, I understand that part, but it's so, what you're attaching it to. What we bring to the scene, we can control its strength and its, and its manufacturing is MBS. But when you get on a rescue scene, what you attach it to rarely has a stamp from the manufacturer saying how strong it is the way it was installed. Right. So we're, we're, we're almost in a kind of a garbage in garbage out situation there, you know, unless, unless you want to go sit through that unbelievably mind numbing presentation a few years ago in Eiders about how strong trees are based, I love that. based on Boeing's engineering. Um, but you don't want kind of, four pages of charts based on species of trees. Yes. You're kind of, you're kind the of, wind loading. I thought that was awesome. I, I thought it was a great presentation too. I was there for that one. That was it is. It's great. It's great if you live right where he lives and you attach to the trees he attaches to that have been in the environment he's been in with the wind loads they have. And that's the point. It's very specific to there. You go a hundred miles east of that, it's going to be a completely different situation. So we're relying on the, on the rescuer on the rescue side of this question to understand what their anchorage is. Well, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> it is, but you can't put a number on it. Sure you can. Really? Well, this podcast brought to you by the letter A and the number three. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you, go, you, go attach, you go attached to a boulder at the top of a cliff and you sling that. And it's the size of a Volkswagen bug. Uh, what's, it, what's the strength on that boulder? I'd be more concerned. What's the coefficient of friction, the angle it's sitting at, and is it going to slide? Exactly. Because sometimes that boulder is bomber, and sometimes you can slide it over the cliff edge by sneezing next to it. It, it It's an education and a training issue, not a, not a rating and a standards issue. 
but they're connected. It's the experience and knowledge of your environment that, le that allows you to go and choose the right anchors and understand how much force you can put on them. Uh, yep. There you go. You know, when you when you look at you know, I mean, just to go back to some known things, we'll go back to building collapse. You know, when you pull out the fog manual, there I, I forget what section it's in, but it gives you massive material based on size and weight, so you can determine what the load is, and you know, you could do the same thing for you know, I think. Uh, Five ton of rock is roughly three by four by five, right? It's like about five tons, right? Uh, no, it's, uh, 22 KN, yeah, about 5,000 pounds. So, you know, it's it. So, don't use a rock small than that. A couple of years ago, Mark was one of the podcasts was talking about they were using blocks at Grim and they slid one, moved one, lifted one, whatever it was. They knew it wasn't right to roll it, but that's an assessment of. Like, do I use this rock? Do I not use this rock based on you, you're supposed to know, you know, if you're working in an outside environment. You're supposed to know or should know, you know, about what rock weighs. If I'm going to use a rock, I should know how much a rock weighs. If I'm going to use a tree. I should roughly know, maybe not memorize all 74 pages and walk around with a species of, you know, comparing pictures in the book to what species tree is this? know your environment know how to yes. assess these things on the fly reasonably it doesn't have to be perfect it's not going to be you're not going to defend your dissertation on it but you have to be able to on the fly understand the environment you're in and be able to make those assessments <laughs> so yeah i think it's all connected i think we're actually all talking about the same thing it's it's and i know this word's come up a bunch of times it's not as prescriptive as we could ever want it to be but that's where knowledge and experience and practice allows us to make those decisions. There's as much art as there is science in rigging to anchors in the natural environment. Having yes. an understanding yeah. of the math and the forces and the weights of stuff, like Cliff is saying, that has some merit. And then like Craig and Mark said, you know, you can have a rock as strong as you want. If it's on the edge of another sharp rock, it's gonna roll if you sneeze next to it. Yeah, you have to recognize that we're we all devolve to heuristics here and use things we've used before, things that have worked well before. We're not engineers. Um, we can roughly estimate. I think it's a little bit easier in the structural world, buildings, industry, etc., to be able to say, okay, I'm looking at a, a piece that I want to sling to, and I can. It's easier to assign a number there than it is in the natural world. But we also have lots of heuristics in the natural world, like trees four to six inches in diameter, well-rooted and live are, you know, good to go, right? Anything bigger than that's a bonus. Um, obviously, here in the Pacific Northwest, um, we get a lot more of a pass than you do in Colorado, slinging to trees, right? Um, certain places, that rule of thumb is not going to work so well, right? So it's about adapting to your environment as well. Um, but it is an assessment and it is imperfect. Uh, and experience is a big part of that. Yeah, I, it, but it's in the built environment as well. I, I worked at, at fire towers with, with departments and they're running tension lines off the, the cinder block columns on the side of the building. And I asked, is there, is there any rebar or steel inside that column? And the answer was, I don't know. And then say that, well, okay, what's the easiest way to tear down a cinder block building? Right? Pull sideways. Push it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it, it, it looks bomber. It looks great. In some situations, that's a 36 kilonewton anchor. In some places, that's not. So it, it is, in both environments, it's still an education and experience issue, and you can't fix it by putting a standard on it. Well, I think Colin kind of hit the nail on the head, and I'll go back to Cliff's comment about that podcast. I was assessing that year, this one in particular was in Taiwan, and it's, it's an art, where the Belgian team, the team leader of the Belgian team, is a good buddy of mine, looked at the anchor and went up and just took his foot and just pushed the thing over and then rigged to the bottom so it dug into the ground. Guy about three down didn't watch that and just flipped his anchor over all by itself once you put a highlight on it. And that's just, that's just experience. That's just that art of rigging, looking, going, yeah, this is going to flip as soon as I rig to it. And, you know, everybody kind of looked at him at first, like, what the hell is this guy doing? And then when he did it, everybody went, oh, yeah, that, that makes total sense. But that's part of it is he took a crap anchor and made it good just by the orientation of it. That is an understanding of the forces on the anchor to what Cliff was saying. And you do need to have that. You need to have that the understanding of the forces, but like Craig said, there's no one calculating the amount of kilonewtons on the rock before you tie off to it from a standards point of view, you know, if you're out on a cliff face. It's funny, we got away from the use of a, it seemed to be frowned upon to use the term bomb-proof anchor there three years ago. It seemed to go out of style. But essentially, that, we, we still use it all the time. It's like, is this anchor clearly adequate? Is it clearly adequate? If it is, then tie off to it. If it's not, go find someone that has a degree of experience more than you do and understands the forces. Uh, so whether that be if it's in the industrial environment, get the scaffolder that built the thing for you, get an engineer, uh, or if you're out on a cliff face, find a more experienced track practitioner. Yeah, and you start just anchoring the you rock protection. Right, You're using cams, using nuts, you know, things like that. That requires a fair amount of experience to understand, you know, how to use those things. And you know, I know where Craig loves to go in Moab. There are no trees, so there's no. no yeah, so it's you know the environments are completely different. Somebody with experience has to show you how to do this to get through it. You know, to to learn it. Still yeah, comes what's down the to a bit of feel at the end of the day. It's just a bit of that good feeling that you get when you got a good anchor. When you don't fall. When you don't fall. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say none of us You're none of mean. us can actually calculate what any forces are. Well, we calculate the forces that we'd apply to it, but what it can actually hold? Not really sure. We hope it's good. Yeah. Jeremy Minnesota <laughs> West Denver. They had an anchor failure and they hauled a uh, a gas power unit in a, uh, a hydraulic ram up the hill uh, and they were basically tying off to the roots of shrubberies and seeing you know if they could develop some heuristics for because that's all they have to anchor to in, the, in a large part of the response area in the front range and they're using a hydraulic ram pulling shrubberies out of the ground and coming up with you know okay we need to collect x numbers of shrubberies with at least so many branches of such and such diameter in order to be happy wow. it's pretty funny pretty cool but that's kind of the this was their environment and they went and they put some rough numbers to it which was interesting so are we doing a piss poor job of teaching anchors to students or anchoring uh yeah yes if you're going to a, an established training facility and you're using the installed anchors 
you are doing a complete disservice to your students. One of the guys, one of the other captains of my crew, he does that all the time. He'll run a, a training scenario and be like, no, you can't use any of this. And the guys are like, well, what are we supposed to rig to? And he goes, because you're going to go up onto the building next to us. And there, none of this is going to exist. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Mark, I think that's that's a huge part of the problem. And as instructors, I think we're doing students a disservice when we, whether it's a low angle and you, and you pick a fall line that's in front of a, a, a full strength anchor and you go, okay, your patient's down at the bottom of this fall line versus moving 10 feet to the right. Um, you know, Craig, when we were up on, uh, you know, our, our high directional class, that was like the common theme, right? With, with all the students, we had this very modern, uh, Cliff, you came up and saw it too, this very, very modern, um, you know, high end structure that's got welded railings that are through bolted, big anchors everywhere. And, and we kept saying every 30 seconds, like, Hey guys, look, this, this is not representative of, of how you're going to guy, you know, high directionals in, in the woods. Um, and, and through student feedback, we're adding a fourth day to the class to, to go out in the woods and kind of apply the guying principles to marginal anchors. Um, and, and I think if you don't do that, I think it's, it's uh, a huge disservice. To hey guys, um, I gotta go. My work crew just showed up and it's snowing and they're volunteering. So I can't sit in here in a warm room and make them work. Uh, we should do this more often. This is what I love about this industry is that people can get together and talk and debate um, and make fun of Cliff. So anytime we can get together and do that, um, let's do it again. I want 60 seconds of your time then. Go. Human redundancy, 60 seconds. You brought it up. What redundancy? Human. You said you brought up something you wanted to chat about today. Human redundancy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going nuts over this. Um, and, and I'll <laughs> simplify it. Uh, I think I think it's a holdover from the MPD. Um, so I'll throw, I'll throw another statement out there. If the, if the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission regulated rescue, the MPD would have been taken off the market. Um, the MPD had some pretty significant flaws, and to overcome those flaws in testing, they added a rope tailor. We added a second human being because it was too easy to keep the brake open and deck the load. We've now taken that same concept of needing a tailor and turned it to other devices and other systems that don't require it. Uh, if you let go of the handle of an ID, it stops. You let go on a clutch, it stops. You let go on anything with a prostate backup, it stops. But we've decided that we need to add a second human being because the first human being could have a heart attack, a stroke, and get hit by lightning all at the same time. Stung by a bee. Don't forget stung by a bee. Yeah. Uh, in any of those things. But we let that same guy drive a 50,000-pound truck with only one steering wheel and one brake pedal to the scene. At some point, we have to trust trained people to do their job and stop adding more layers of complexity and more personnel to overcome what, what is a non-event. So there's my rant. We'll carry on with that now that you're leaving. All right. Have, fun <laughs> you're Have fun, guys. I, I can't wait for the recording. Greg, don't worry. I'll make fun of myself for you. Perfect. <laughs> are, are you using an MPD to raise the loads? On this year, no, I'm using <laughs> I'm using I'm using non-redundant human power. Boom. <laughs> Mike, thanks, Craig. You guys, see you, buddy. So I'll I'll pick up Craig's point. I'm sure someone here will speak to it. Don't we defeat all devices in order to make them lower? Some better than others. You see, nobody turn a handle on an MPD and defeat the device. Don't we defeat all devices? Some better than others. Yeah, and I and I think you know um, Craig has used that that kind of example uh, with me, and we, we've you know I've, I've heard him give it to students. Um, and I, unfortunately, he had to jump off. 
Um, I do think it's important to point out, though, while I understand the the analogy, um, you know, 16 to 17 year old drivers are like four and a half times more likely to get an accident than a 30 to 39 year old. And that's because of their training and experience. Um, so 16 so, and a half year old MPD operators are more. <laughs> right. To deck a load than a 30 year old. <laughs> and the, um, the concept of Taylor, when it was introduced uh, that I saw was. It was purely for that. It was for your inexperienced guy who's using a new device, having someone else tend the ropes. And it's not so much the failing the device part. It was if you had one rope fail and you held for that second or second and a half or whatever it was, you held the sweet spot on an ID or you hold the MPD wide open how far would the rope travel until the person consciously lets go? That was a that was a reason for the rope tailor at the time. With the yeah, I mean my my understanding of it was like you know twin lowering with with MPD specifically, yeah. right? And was it was it Mothner who somebody did a whole bunch of uh, not Mothner um, Mothner? It was Kirkup, the MBC study. Yeah, yeah, you know, and they, they did a whole bunch of drops with failing one side. Um, you know, with, with, with yeah, I think it even was with two people, um, but the how far will you fall kind of thing. Yeah. I'll let uh, Kevin speak to it in a second, but I want to bring up one thing, you know, when people say, oh, you know, before you lock out an ID or something, we're assuming that when people panic, they're going to pull all the way down and not just freeze. Yeah, no, if you, if you don't, if you just hold it open or maybe let go of the ticket, yeah, there's a lot of options. It's not just wrench. Yeah, like, like the only option we've done for panic is pull it all the way over. Right. But if you don't panic that way, like no one's been trained in this industry to panic. There, it's impossible to predict if anybody is ever going to let go of a thing right. in, an, exactly. in a dire emergency. As a matter of fact, most science posts the fact that you're actually going to hold on to it. <laughs> or you're you're going to grab it. You're oh. going to hold it. You're going to hold it harder. You're going to pull it harder. That's where science points us. No one is really, you know, science from other industries and concepts, but there's nothing out there to support. You're going to consciously recognize your teammate is falling to his death and you're going to say, I should let go. I mean, that's what we need to teach rescuers, just throw a system, basically. Every system, if you throw it, should just stop. But if we just hold it, MPD, if we just hold an ID, we're going to get the same result. Let's make Kevin, sure we need, EMB, we need a... We need a device that works like the clutch as a pulley and a descent control device and locks up like the ASAP. Well, the clutch is a terrible need, thing. Uh, we need a bi-handle <laughs> handle that can actually read your pulse rate and the adrenaline. <laughs> we need an ASAP and a controlled descent device. We need an ASAP and a descent control device. Exactly, and locks up. Yeah, so the, I mean, you, you know, just to, to add to what Craig was saying, to be fair, you let go of the MPD, it locks up. It does what it does very well. The problem is the MPD seems to be the most difficult device to let go of. And when we're talking about letting go of devices, that's what we had to do with the old Petzl stop, is let go of the thing. And that's one of the reasons it fell into disfavor is because we had to let go of it in order to stop. What do we do? Any bobbin stop. When people get stressed, what do they do? They tend to, as uh, Colin, um, sorry, um we squeeze harder and we keep going right so that was the problem with the old pencil stop and lots of people still use the pencil stop right um and what's the other one we have anthron 
No, no, no. Next to the Petzl stop, the the red one. Oh, you get the simple and the, the stop. simple and the stop. Um, but they're still cool devices to play with. And Richard Delaney has some thoughts about anti-panic um, devices. You know, the panic locks. Um, and he's not necessarily a huge fan of them. Are they a tool? Sure, they're a tool. If we happen to pull the handle too far, they work. But there's plenty of devices out there that don't have panic stop features. Um, and there are other things we can do, like adding prosthetics either in series ahead of or behind. We did that for years with brake racks, for instance, um, and didn't have these issues. The MPD just seems to have the issue of it takes, seems to take longer for people to let go and to let it actuate. But it's really, it's a human factor thing. <laughs> talking about. But I think, the, I think the biggest problem with the MPD and the way this lends it, well, the, the characteristic of the MPD, it lends itself to being so, uh, the drop being longer and the whole, and the whole thing just being worse than the other devices is that when you take that off, it has less inherent friction than a bobbin device because the rope is running over and, you know, it, it, the pulley is actually moving. So there's less friction inherently when you take the brake off the MPD as opposed to an ID or any other bobbin device or any, you know, now the clutch um, because the rope is running over a stationary, portion which is imparting friction where the mpd is just a pulley when you take the brake off so if you do let it go you might as well just have a single sheet pulley in front of you uh to to be correct the mpd it is a single direction pulley when you remove the brake you're just pulling the the, the moving v groove away no. so there is friction of the rope over the stationary pulley the, the pulley's not turning when you're lowering I, no, not a lot of friction. It's the smoothest pulley uh, control device. Mm. Doesn't have the crenellated sheath of the clutch and the. The assumption that's why you had to take it all the way off because if you left the brake partially on, you ground the brake pads down. When the brake pad has nothing to do with the V brake, they're separate. So I think we're really looking at: Do you need a tailor here or not? That's what the conversation is about. Junior guys with a new device. Have you got an extra guy standing around? Have them hold on the rope as a tailor. Uh, if you've got senior technicians or ASAPs running out in front of your device, like uh, we see in some CMC videos, no, you don't. So it really comes down to that. I, I think the concept has merit until we get the, the great descent control device that has technology built into it, like a fall protection, self-attracting lifeline or an ASAP. Well, I mean, and to be fair, to put some context into EMBC, an EMBC rope rescuer needs to do 20 hours a year to stay current. Good. Right? I mean, so when you think about that particular context, you're taking, I mean, in, in search and rescue in BC for people that don't know is a volunteer task. So you're taking volunteers, a lot of whom don't do this as a primary job i mean i volunteer kevin volunteers with sorry yes but also we use mpds and fire that's more of a rarity than it is the norm you have to have a maximum or i'm sorry minimum of 20 hours on rope in sar so i mean quite honestly you could be sitting there in july with your 10 hours i'm not touched an mpd all year and be required to go and do a lower somewhere in the backcountry in british columbia in that case i don't think there's a trainer out there that wouldn't say maybe we should add in some other level of safety into this conversation. I mean, I think the, 
the differentiation we talk about tailors, at least my, my take on it um, goes back to Colin's point. I, I think if you take like the, the, we'll call it double clutching, but, but one person operating two devices, I think we could all agree that usually the, the fatal flaw in most systems is, is a person. It's a, it's a human error. It's, it's usually not gear failing. And, and I, that was my take on, on why a tailor was necessary for a single operator running both sides of a system. Because I would say that if we had a, a whether it's a dedicated main, dedicated belay, um, or, or twin tension systems, if it was separate operators, um, I, I think that changes what we're talking about quite a bit. And I, right? I think it comes down to, no argument here. If you don't think you need a tailor, don't use one. Yeah. Yeah, I think from a training perspective, I actually think putting the ASAP out in front on a new operator gives them uh, less of a learning curve, learning how to do it, because now they're not fighting the tailor for rope. They actually get to feel what the ropes feel like as they're getting into it, but you still have the safety net of that two meters per second restriction. Well, this is an interesting tangent. New NFPA standard, they've moved repelling out of the operations end of it into the technician. I used to be a firm believer that until you lowered your own self down a building, you don't get to lower anybody else down a building. I mean, yes, the device functions slightly different when it's anchored as opposed to on you. But if you can't figure out how to do it on yourself, why would I let you lower your buddy? Mark, you're preaching to the choir for me, man, because when, when, when it hit, when ascending and descending hit the operations level in 2017 edition, um, I was really personally excited. And now it's back out in 2021. Um, I think that's a really fundamental skill set that in the fire service rope rescue kind of gets brushed under the rug, um, which I think comes full circle to the like stealing parts from access and industry. I, I think personal on rope skills are something that could be like uh, really kind of focused on more in, in NFPA style uh, education. I think it's super important. I think that's 100% agreement. And if you're listening to this out there and you're a firefighter, go take a rope access course. It is not going to hurt you. Yeah. Well, great it, idea. it will hurt your forearm. And your, <laughs> <laughs> your left forearm and your thighs are going to be brutalized by Thursday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> agreed, agreed there. Yeah. Uh, Colin, probably wrap it up with this one because we've been at it for a little bit. And I don't think you were talking about ITRA here, but you'd said you'd like some help promoting the idea of ongoing company assessments for rescuers rather than too much reliance on certificate expiry dates and what it really takes to instruct rope rescue. Is it more than just a five day, one day, one week wonder train the trainer? <laughs> Two different points there. Uh, okay. We're talking about one is how do we mold and get instructors competent to actually teach. The other thing is, is as training providers, at least we see a whole lot of emphasis still put on what is the expiry date on that certificate? And it's only in the last few rounds of NFPA uh, where we've seen the requirement in 1006 that the rescuer needs to demonstrate competency on an annual basis who's actually doing it 
And does that mean if you demonstrate competency on an annual basis, where does that leave us with regards to a refresher? So let's look at the point first on competency. We've done a bit of research on it in-house, and I guess is where we're trying to hang our hat with how do we know at the end of the day you have a technician that knows what they're doing? Even after a training course or six months after the fact, how do we actually know? I think there's a lot of work to be done there, both in industry and maybe in the fire service. You know, are you doing an ongoing assessment to make sure on any given day you have a person who's available to, to perform? Uh, so yeah, I guess from that point of view, I think we all need to put a little bit more focus on that and just get away from expiry dates on certificates. I, I, still, I still see some people or talk to some people and they say, well, my, my NFPA gold seal from wherever doesn't have an expiry date on it. But you haven't done it in six years, so don't you think you should do some refresher training, right? Or the other side of it is if you have an active practitioner who is doing competency assessments on a daily basis, or maybe they're practicing, do they need to go anywhere in three years time? Uh, I'd like to see more of a emphasis put on ongoing competency as opposed to do a course, then you've got skill decay, you do a course, skill decay, the distance between courses, we make it up. It's one year, two years, or three years based on what people are going to pay for at the time. It's got nothing else any more to do with it than that. So to me, we just we need to get away from that concept. It needs to go on ongoing competency. What do you guys think? It's interesting because I just mentioned in search and rescue in BC, they want this 20 hours. And I think that's what they're trying to do. But you could have someone that's competent in four hours and there might be a lot of people out there that have done their 20 that you still don't want on rope. That's right. That's right. What's the metric? There's a question for the group. What's the metric that needs to be used? I think you go back to the objectives for the whatever they're falling under. You know, can they still do the job? Can they still complete those objectives? Um, I think the, I think where we, uh, where I see a lot of training fail is that they do the same thing over and over again. It's Tuesday, let's take the bag out, let's set it up in the same spot we've been setting it up for in the last 10 years. We've run the same drill, maybe we'll flip the rope. You know, we'll use the other side of the rope this week and we'll switch it back to this side of the rope next week. And then we, uh, it becomes more habit than thought process. More, it's, it's not engaging anymore. So I think our, our drills need to be better used to um, uh, generate some real problem solving. Um, you know, some, some real intrinsic thought. Yeah, exactly. Flipping the tripod. Yeah. On live TV. I like that, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> And and that's more along the lines of competency. It's you're thinking about observed behavior in a real environment mm -hmm. that's like to the task you're actually going to have to perform. Whereas there's so many places you're doing the same training over and over again and the same same anchor setup, same I beam in your warehouse ceiling. Yeah. Uh, and again, the focus is on we got to do this this week because it's been six months since, or it's been two years since or three years since. So, but.
That's right. Well, and I think part, part of the huge challenge, right? And I'll 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 come to the defense a little bit of like the North American Fire Service is Mark, and you know, I'm sure you can agree that the longer you've been in this, the more the responsibilities have have kind of uh, expanded. And there's only so many mandated things that you have to refresh on bloodborne, whether it's EMT, paramedic recertification, there's a, there's a lot of federally mandated um, classes that you have to refresh on every year, and there's a lot that you don't. And unfortunately, I think like rope rescue um, is one of those things where you're not, you know, legally compelled to refresh people on. So I think that often kind of gets swept under the rug, while other the, the, the compulsory requirements kind of take the forefront, because there's always like a, a, a monetary aspect too, that we can't get well, away from. And so that, then, you know, there's, you know, you have to look at the department, you know, the uh, staffing cutbacks and call volume changes. And, you know, when you layer in real life on top of, you know, the pile of paperwork we have to check boxes on, you know, uh, like you said, a lot of things go to the wayside pretty quickly. It's yeah. And, and I think it's, I think it's through no fault of a lot of people's, you know, um, I, I think it's just, you continue to get asked to do more with less. And I, I hate to sound cliche, but like, that's what's happening uh, with, with hazmat and structural collapse and EMS and now COVID. And, and I think kind of the more and more we're asked to do, the harder it is to stay competent on the really, really important things. When these things were new, they got lots of attention. They're not new now. Right. Right. One of the things that I'll give credit to our CTO in my department, uh, we've put now our rope rescue program and managed to get it assigned for CE credits for our medical. And it's not a lot. I mean, it's like half a credit because there's not a lot of medical in some of this stuff. And for the different modules, if you went and did the entire program, you'd probably have half your CE credits for the year. But this now gives people a little bit more reason to do it because I need my damn CE credits anyways. So I might as well go out on the rescue if I'm on rescue and go do rope rescue or go to auto access. Another one we've managed to get in there so that I can I could get two kind of kill two birds with one stone in that aspect. So yeah, furthering on to that topic, the reason why I threw instructor into there is because the instructor topic, the competency topic, and the testing topic is all related. So if you have an instructor, you could also call them your team leader, your fire captain, your mentor on any level. How do we get those people at the instructor level. We sometimes you see anything from a, you did the course, now you come back and you teach your crew or you go away, you do a train the trainer and we're seeing instructors. Can the instructors even identify what is competent and what's not, you know, can the instructors identify? Yeah, sure. You can hook up a hall system from the front bump of your truck through a beam clamp in a ceiling. We know you can do that, but can you respond to real life rescue situations? So what do you guys think with regards to developing instructors, team leads, mentors? What does it take? Years. I think there's a lot of danger, Colin, to your point in being like a subject matter expert in everything. Right. I mean, like, you know, how much competency do you actually have if, if you're the guy for everything? Um, how much are you maintaining? How much are you able to pass on? Um, I'm sure it's budget related, but I think um, in, in organizations, training companies, um, fire academies, um, you know, if you can narrow down the, the skill set that that person's required to, to, you know, maintain competency in and teach, um, I think that helps tremendously. Um, but like, 
when you have the same person teaching, you know, instructor classes and hazmat tech classes um, and fire one classes, and it's kind of like this broad spectrum of experience. Um, I, I think that's hard. And, and again, I, I think that person individually, it's, it's no fault of theirs if that's what they're asked to do. But I think staying up on trends and, and competency in all those areas is tough. Oh, for sure. Uh, I always say, you know, everyone expects public fire service to respond to everything from cats stuck in trees to combined space rescues, hazmat incidents, to large structural fires. So there's a lot on the plates for you firefighter types. I think um, something that we haven't really talked about is good method of instruction training for instructors. And I haven't really delved into the fire service instructor standard um, myself. Um, so I, I won't speak to that. I know Mark can, can speak to that one. Um, but I know that I do know that two day fire service instructor programs are not sufficient to develop an instructor. Um, having said that, the, the other thing that's been bandied around here uh, is hours and like competency is the metric and hours is a very poor proxy for competency. And it's unfortunately used in, in several industries. It's, it's a big part of rope access. You people ac accumulate lots of hours, hundreds, if not thousands of hours. And all they do is go up and down. That's right. Um, but they have the hours to progress in rope, the rope access world in their five days every three years they do some different stuff but on the regular day-to-day -day, they don't so their breadth of experience just isn't there that doesn't mean they're not competent going up and down or doing the, the, the minimum required for rope access but it's just a point to be made that ours is a very very poor proxy so measuring competency is by nature hard and that kind of brings us full circle how do we do that at the training level with good assessment um, and should that assessment be independent. Yep, and, and a little bit more of a map. I'd like to see a little bit more meat around what it takes to become an instructor. I think we all know that, you know, for, you, need, you should be training with various different schools, go to different places, learn different things. If you've, if you've become an instructor and graduated all the way up through the one program, from the one course, no matter from the one uh, provider, it doesn't matter where it's from. You have the breadth of knowledge to to say you're the subject matter expert in it or the the instructor in it. That's uh, not the question they ask. They they, they ask as they give you your certificate on Friday. Are you available on Monday to teach? That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, a couple points to that. I mean, Kevin and I both came out of a military background. I don't know what the background of you guys are from that depth. To do the first step of leadership advancement in the military where you become an instructor as well, I want to say it's four or five month course. Yep. And if they kick you out of the course, at least back in the day, they could kick you out of the army because you had, you know, said, Hey, I think I have some leadership potential and some advancement potential. And if you didn't, uh, then it was kind of like, well, off your run then. Thanks for coming out. And so you like you say, you do an M of I course now, method of instruction, and it's eight hours. And it's, what are you really learning to deliver? And the other one I default to a lot too, and I, I dislike the fire service for this, where you go take a technician course and the next week you teach it. I call it my 90-90-90 rule. I think you've probably heard of it. So you're the best student in the world and you've got the best instructor in the world. And that instructor manages to relay 90% of the knowledge that's out that he's supposed to relay to you and you're the best student and you absorb 90% of that knowledge. And you're the world's best instructor. So you go back on Monday to teach 
your students who are the best students in the world. So you relay 90% of what you picked up of the 90% that he delivered at 90% to a student that now is the best student that receives that 90-90-90 at 90%. You're about 79% of the required material now being delivered at the end of the day. Which is scary. That's right. My my guess my guess has always been fifty percent. If you do a course, everything that instruct you might pass that test at the end of the week that we all know is like some sort of I don't know, probably garbage multiple choice test that we have just all agreed that doesn't make you a good rope rescue practitioner or not. So you got ninety percent on your multiple choice test. And then you need to go teach the same. So you just did a five-day course. Now you teach a five-day course. I'd say you remember half at best of what the instructor told you throughout the week. The science there, it's, it's called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve uh, of how quickly you forget material that you've only been exposed to once. That's why I hang out with as you, you repeatedly, repeatedly get exposed to the same material, how you slowly over time uh, are able to recall more and more of it. That's why it's called experiential learning. As Cliff said, time, you need experience. That's, there's no two ways about it. Right, Mark, I mean, like, what's the, uh, the joke? The guy who got a, a 70 in med school is still a doctor. Yeah. I said, what's I call 51% in med school called doctor. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and, and I don't think we're unique in our industry with that problem. Um, I think that, you know, uh, getting 100 on an exam or getting 100 that one day um, might not necessarily, like, dictate the rest of your career. I do think there needs to be some benchmark, right? If that's 70, it, it's 70 and, and you know, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I, I think every industry suffers from that. Oh, and I um, agree. And I mean, I, you know, if you get 70%, you don't come back, you work the truck, you're, you, you'll be a good rope rescuer sort of thing with some time and some experience. And then we can make you an instructor. But I think right. most fire services are probably similar to ours. If there's a tech rescue opening, let's put it out, the senior candidate wins. The senior candidate may have never been on rescue in his entire career. Well, I think that that is kind of getting more towards a solution where, um, you know, instructor one in, in at least NFPA, right, is, is not about teaching rope or confined space or it's about learning how adults learn and, and learning how to deliver material, read a curriculum. Um, I'll take it, a little it step further. It's rote. It's how to yeah. regurgitate an already prepared lesson. You're, you're a right. script reader. Um, that's so, instruction. So, you know, is, is there a need for a pathway to, you know, uh, an instructor pathway in, in different disciplines? And I, I think there is. Um, I, I think there's a need to have a, a minimum amount of experience. I, I do think time kind of helps um, create experience while it's not, you know, the best metric. Um, but I think there should be an instructor pathway. Without proper testing, it puts extra emphasis on making sure that instructor knows what he's doing. In the absence, we've all agreed that we don't have real testing where we need it to be. So we're really not finding out which ones of those instructors aren't really competent. And one of the interesting things we've uncovered through going to various sources in our research, even the most, the interesting thing about instruction is that the most skilled rescuers from a competency point of view also are not your best instructors. I kicked door. You <laughs> <laughs> really good. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, does anybody here do 
instructor evals? Like, do you send people out on a somewhat, you know, regular basis in order to evaluate your instructors? Um, There's nowhere to, we, we don't, I mean, it's not formal, but uh, both at, you know, where I teach here at the hazmat school for the city, we do try to have, you know, more senior instructors sit in with the, you know, some of the newer instructors. And even like, if I write a new lesson plan, I'll ask, you know, guys I've been working with for years, I'm like, do me a favor, sit in on this and let me know where, you know, where, where I'm not hitting. Because what I think is a great delivery. I've been wrong way more than one time, you know? So, I mean, Chris, <laughs> I want to, I'm going to argue more. that point though, Cliff. Yeah. I, Cliff has been wrong. <laughs> way more than I, I think there are senior instructors that, aren't qualified to be instructors. How do you know that that senior instructor that you're asking to sit in on your program is qualified to even well, make a recommendation did, to No, you? it's not like I asked somebody I don't, I, I would never ask somebody I don't know because then the conversation doesn't go well afterwards because you don't know if you can right. say. So a lot of that has to do with rapport and you know how, you know, I mean, I've been teaching at the school for 10 years now. So, um, you know, there are some people I will ask their opinion. There are some people I will definitely not ask their opinion because I don't trust what the validity of it. Right. And I mean, I'm coming from kind of a personal bias with a class that I recently took, and I'm not going to get into the weeds about it. Uh, but there were some very senior instructors that had no business teaching what they were teaching because they didn't know what they were talking about. And, if and I, I, I had to pull one aside and confront him. And he's like, oh. And, and, you know, some of the other, other people in class had no idea what was going on. And I did this privately because I didn't want to discredit this guy. I wanted to be respectful and professional about it. But, you know, these are the people that we're, we're looking at as instructors. And, and they're not competent. This, this guy did not know the piece of equipment he was teaching at all. Oh, that's, if, if, if we have the collection of peers you keep, you know, it, it's... Right. You know, like I, I know you and Kevin work together, and you know the three of us have had many conversations. I come up and saw you guys. Um, we've already talked about you know if the, if Itra does ever get off the uh, the slab, I should say. Um, you know, like <laughs> CTR would come and assess your classes, and Vector would come up to Albany and assess our classes. You know, and have that open relationship based on us knowing each other for the better part of a year now and getting to know each other. So a lot more in understanding, you know. Can I trust this person or can I not trust this person? But that has to do with how we, as the instructors that are already in place, bring up the next group of people and make sure they're better than we are, not even as good as we are, that they're actually better than we are. So that way the program continues to grow and, and be good, be valid. Mentoring. Well, and I think, Cliff, to your point, right? Like, if, if we want to preach about like external validation, I think we got to walk the walk and, um, you know, send our own instructors. To, even it's to our peers, right? Like if, I, if we send somebody up to British Columbia to like take a class with you guys. We're not allowed to do yeah. that right now. <laughs> I know. None of us in this conversation could actually travel to each other's home. <laughs> but I think that's important. You know, we, we have, we have uh, somebody who works for us that we, we sent outside for a class because it, it gives credibility to like, we're not going to say he's, he's been trained. He, he went for, for third party training. Um, and I think we all need to do that um, in house. And even if it's bringing in somebody for, um, refreshers, you know, Hey, this year we're going to do a, a company level 
refresher and we're going to bring in a third party for it. I think that's And I think as an instructor, there's two, there's two streams here. One is the competence and the person that assesses you or you send them to, we sent a group to Kirk Moffner last month, month before, you know, to me, that is a competency thing update. It doesn't necessarily teach you how to teach the material, but you're getting some new material. And you're getting an understanding um, so above what you're teaching when you go to a course like that. That's important. The other thing is, I mean, not trying not to toot us as much, but we bring in a guy a lot of times to do an M of I assessment, and that's what we call it. And this individual, I was in the army with him. He's a good instructor. He delivered instructor training for the military, and he doesn't know a damn thing. I mean, it's a rope. All he's there is to see, can the person at the front of the class teach? Is he following principles of instruction? Are the students retaining what that person is delivering? And that's a totally different audit than are you competent in it? Yeah, that's correct. And it's important people understand that, especially the ones that are looking to become an instructor. And if we have that third party testing of students, you'll quickly get to see who the good instructors are and what they did start doing what they're doing but we don't it's almost like a chicken and the egg thing we need both to happen yeah well gentlemen i think we've gone full circle back from one to the other um i appreciate your time it's been a while and it's been, it's been a couple hours i think it's worthwhile to have a few people in the community get together and have conversations like this this will be out christmas morning it's not christmas right now for the people that are listening because I don't imagine any of us would be sitting here on Christmas morning doing this. Well, I'm at work, so it wouldn't be happening at all. But <laughs> I do appreciate your time. Is there anything else anybody wants to throw in here before we shut her down? Thanks for having me involved. It was, uh, it's great, great to get together to chat with you guys. And I think it's to the betterment of our industry. Definitely. Thanks for the invite, Mark. We appreciate it. Right on. Well, everybody stay safe. Merry Christmas to you and yours and your family. And we'll all see you all. Merry Christmas. All Thanks, the best. Mark. Merry Christmas.